0: This is The Takeaway. I'm Todd Zwillick, in for John Hawkenberry all this week. Thanks so much for listening. Well, remember that political quip from the last decade? Republicans coined it. Their base, some of them used to joke, cared about three things, right? God, guns, and gays. Well, two of those things are at the very top of our national debate right now, both commanding our attention, but probably with very different political destinies. Now, supporters of gay rights and, in fact, their opponents have been shocked by the speed with which the gay rights movement has turned the tide of public opinion. Just 50 years since gay rights was even a term, cases today and tomorrow in the Supreme Court could solidify gay rights with civil rights. Well, gun control, on the other hand, might produce an outpouring of emotions in the public, but it has made few to no gains politically in Washington. Not in 20 years, anyway. Later this hour, we're going to talk about why that is. Plus, we're asking you all this hour what you think should happen to your online identity after you die. Should your Facebook, your Twitter, your blog live on after you're gone? My name is Cody. I'm from Oklahoma City. I want all of my blogs and Internet stuff to stay on the Internet forever. It's a form of immortality. And not all of you agree with Cody. This is Christina Fisher from Metro Detroit. Get rid of it. Make room for the next ones coming up. Call us at 8778-MY-TAKE. Tell us what you think. But we begin now with cases before the Supreme Court. Today, the court hears the first of two cases on the constitutionality of gay marriage and the federal government's ability to deny it, even when states recognize it. The first case is known as Hollingsworth v. Perry. It's a challenge to California's Proposition 8. That's the voter-approved state constitutional amendment that banned same-sex marriage in California back in 2008. Kenji Yoshino is a constitutional law professor at New York University School of Law, and he says there are two major legal issues at stake in this case.
1: So there's a liberty claim and an equality claim. And the liberty claim is that the Prop 8 violates same-sex couples' fundamental right to marry. So that the idea there is everyone should have the freedom to marry the individual that they choose. And then the equality claim is a claim that gay people are being denied fair treatment because they're being differentially treated from opposite-sex couples.
0: So the court could rule on either of these claims or one or the other or give it a pass, I suppose.
1: Exactly. So the okay. template for this, you know, in the district court was Loving versus Virginia, where the court went off on both grounds and said there's both an equal protection and a liberty violation. And, and is it really
0: analogous to the bans on interracial marriage at that time? Are, are the legal fulcrums sort of the same, that, that there's no way to defend segregated marriage and still have equal protection?
1: So it really depends on which side of the case you ask. So you'll definitely see the lawyers for the plaintiff, the famous odd couple David Boies and Ted Olson making the argument that this is very much like Loving versus Virginia. What they're saying is marriage has always been an evolving institution. Different groups have asked for access to the right. It used to be that interracial couples were not permitted into the institution, and then they were. And now same-sex couples are being asked to be introduced into the institution, and they should be allowed in as well for fundamental fairness reasons. The other side is saying, actually, no, this is categorically different from Loving because interracial couples can engage in procreation internal to the union, whereas same-sex couples cannot create a child between themselves. And they view marriage as being primarily about Uh, protecting children, and so therefore they would distinguish Loving versus Virginia.
0: I want to ask about potential outcomes to this case because there's been a lot of commentary on the court going too far here, the way a lot of people, even pro-choice people, think the court may have gone too far in 1973 with Roe versus Wade. Now, the court here could say Proposition 8 violates gay people's constitutional right to marry. And they could say that no
1: state has the right to outlaw. They could go that far. Right. But will they? Right. What's interesting about the Roe analogy is that the last time that the court engaged in that large of a project of flipping so many states on a major social issue was Roe versus Wade in 1973. I do think that the court may be cautious about this. You know, Justice Ginsburg in a lecture she actually gave at NYU uh, many years ago before she was elevated to the United States Supreme Court, said that she believed that the abortion issue should have been decided more narrowly than it was in Roe v. Wade and that the abortion right would be on more secure footing. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of people are going to be listening for her during both days of argument. So what
0: will it mean if the court is to decide more narrowly, assuming, let's say, that the challengers to Prop 8 were to win for the sake of this discussion?
1: So there are really three options on the table. So One would be what I call the eight-state solution, where there are currently eight states. It will be nine states after Colorado goes through. Colorado's broad civil unions will kick in on May 1st. But there will be nine states, let's say, by the time this decision comes down in June, that have civil unions or domestic partnerships that give same-sex couples all of the rights and benefits of marriage, withholding only the word marriage from those unions. And so the court could say— well, this is really an issue about withholding a brand because you're worried that it's going to be tarnished if it's applied to same-sex couples. And if you're worried about tarnishment, you're really worried about you know, what you're really claiming is that same-sex couples are second-class citizens. And so that's a unfairness that violates the Equal Protection Clause. And so that would flip those, let's say, nine states and put them into the column along with the nine states that permit a same-sex marriage without going the full 50 there are also two options to flip only California, what I call the one state solution. One option is to say you can't give a right as California did on May 15, 2008, through a Supreme Court, a California Supreme Court decision, and then withdraw it through an instrument like Prop 8 on the basis of animus against a particular group. And that solution would affect only California because California is the only state among the 50 that currently has given the right and then taken it away without having given it back. Obviously, it can't be a simple non-retrogression principle because all the time we see people repealing laws that they've enacted.
0: Non-retrogression, no no take backs in other words. Exactly.
1: That in itself can't be the constitutional ground, but there has to be this additional element of – the kind of take these back-seize, mm-hmm. right? Betokens a kind of animus against the group. Okay, so now there was a second one-state solution that exactly. you referred to, yeah. So the last intermediate step that the court could take between, you know, zero and 50 is a one-state solution that's purely procedural. So if you thought the last one was technical, this is even more technical. <laughs> Let's do <it> quick. <laughs> yeah, so the technical uh, thing would be you're the wrong people to bring this lawsuit. So you the, don't have standing. Exactly. Right. So the proponents of Prop 8 who are, the sponsors of the ballot initiative do not have standing because the proper people to have appealed this to the Supreme Court are the governor and the attorney general of California. They have declined to appeal the district court decision. Notice what happens here, Todd, which is that if this case gets kicked on standing grounds, it gets kicked all the way back to the district court because if they didn't have standing to appeal to the Supreme Court, they didn't have standing, presumably to appeal to the Ninth Circuit. And so the district court opinion would stand and marriage would return, but only to California. But only to California. Now, There is another
0: case which will be heard tomorrow on the Defense of Marriage Act. Now, basically in those nine states, and I will add my hometown of the District of Columbia where gay marriage is legal, even where gay marriage is legal under DOMA, you can't claim any federal benefits. Now, what's interesting about DOMA is that the White House, the Solicitor General, the Obama administration usually defends statutes. They're not defending this one.
1: No, they are enforcing it, but they're refusing to defend. And I want to make clear that this is very rare, but it's not unprecedented. So each of the past four presidents has declined to defend.
0: Now, who is defending it, however, is the House of Representatives under the leadership of the Republicans, under the leadership of Speaker John Boehner. There is a legal defense fund in the House. And because the Obama administration refused to defend DOMA. The House Republicans have stepped in and decided to do it. And I had a chance to ask John Boehner about this the other day, and I thought it might be a nice place to play for you his response when I sort of asked him about squaring his personal beliefs, that marriage was between one one man and one woman, and having the whole House under his leadership defend DOMA. Listen,
1: Uh, DOMA was a a law passed by the House, the Senate, and signed into law by President Clinton. In our system of government, uh, the administration doesn't get to decide what's constitutional. The Supreme Court does. And our financing of a lawsuit was to make sure that the, the proper forum was used to make sure that we know what's constitutional and what isn't. So I have a couple of problems with that statement. So one is that he suggests that President Obama is arrogating the power of the courts to himself and declining to defend this. This is untrue because Obama is not saying the Supreme Court shouldn't decide this case. He's just saying that he wouldn't defend it. And in fact, Chief Justice John Roberts himself, when he was acting Solicitor General, declined to defend in an affirmative action case. And so this is something that occurs on both sides of the aisle. So it's not as untoward as I think his statement implies. The other thing that could be a real problem for Boehner and the House in this litigation is that the Bipartisan Legal Advisory Group is not really the House. It's a committee of the House. And there's going to be an issue as to whether or not this Uh, committee of the House can step in to represent not only the House of Representatives, but the Congress as a whole in the court, uh, which it's purporting to do. Uh, In the cert grants, the Supreme Court set some questions. So both in today's case and in tomorrow's case, what the court said was there are issues that relate to whether or not the proper parties are before us. And in the uh, Windsor case, tomorrow's case, the issue is whether or not the bipartisan legal advisory group is properly representing Congress. And if it doesn't, then uh, the Court doesn't have jurisdiction to hear the case. Now, Paul Clement
0: is going to be the attorney for the bipartisan litigation group that you mentioned. He also represented the, the petitioners against the Affordable Care Act, a case he lost. You, you suggested to me a minute ago that you thought that Paul Clement might lose here and he kind of knows it. Why? What's, what's so tough about a DOMA argument uh, for the proponents here?
1: Yeah. So first, I mean, Paul Clement is an extraordinarily lawyer. So if anyone can win this case, he can win this case. But I think that the deck is really stacked against him because the Defense of Marriage Act case is very, very vulnerable uh, on the ground that, as you noted, this doesn't change the definition of marriage in any state. It says we are going to withhold federal benefits from people who are already recognized in their home states as married. And the reason that this is more vulnerable than Proposition 8 is because marriage has traditionally been an issue of state law rather than federal law. So the 1996 Defense of Marriage Act is really a usurpation of the traditional relationship between the federal and the state governments on the side of the federal government who is coming in and defining marriage law in a way that is at odds with the way in which the state has defined it. So I think that there are a lot of conservatives on the court who at least have a stated preference for keeping family law, and specifically marriage law, as stated in earlier cases like Lopez or Morrison in 95 and 2000, respectively, as the province of the state, as quote-unquote traditional state domains. So the fact that Congress has stepped in and said, we're no longer going to defer to state marriage definitions, we are going to impose our own marriage definition, could raise some hackles, at least on the middle of the court. So votes like Kennedy and Roberts might be gettable on the grounds that this is not just an equality case, but also a state's rights case.
0: Kenji Yoshino, constitutional law professor at New York University, can't let you go without a little bit of a handicapping exercise here since you're the expert. Uh, I heard you say there that you think DOMA is going down uh, after oral arguments tomorrow. Correct. Okay. there's one prediction from Kenji Yoshino and today oral arguments on Proposition 8 prediction. What do you think is going to happen?
1: I think that the Supreme Court will rule for the plaintiffs but on one of the intermediate grounds. So either the one-state solution and procedural grounds, the one-state substantive solution or the eight-state solution. Or the eight-state solution.
0: So uh, unlikely in your view to have sort of a broad Roe v. Wade type of decision saying all 41 states, your gay marriage bans are null and void unconstitutional.
1: It's always dangerous to uh, handicap like this, but I think both the zero and the 50 are unlikely. Yeah. Well, danger is what we're all about. Yes, and con law professors are all kinds of dangerous anyway. <laughs>
0: Kenji Yoshino, the most dangerous con law professor at New York University and our friend here on The Takeaway, helping us unpack oral arguments today in Hollingsworth versus Perry. Tomorrow, United States versus Windsor, the Defense of Marriage Act, both before the Supreme Court. Professor, thank you so much. Thank you, Todd.